This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are here for the very first time. Uh, this is a very safe place for you to be a skeptic. So even if someone drug you here and you didn't really want to be here and you're really skeptical of the whole Bible thing and probably even more skeptical of organized religion, by the way, if you are, um, I'm one of those. I struggle a lot with organized religion, but I don't struggle with Jesus and I don't struggle at this point with his mission on planet Earth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to welcome you. And for those of you viewing online, I want to welcome you. I know that you're not here this morning, but nevertheless, this is just as much for you. So welcome along on the ride. So we are in this series called The Bible for Grownups. And so this is a Bible that I preached from for many, many years. Um, And it's got my name in gold right on the front, so no one can steal it. How about that? Um, But you know, it struck me that if If we were to ask everyone in the world who believes and trusts this book where it came from, we would probably get as many different answers as there are people who believe. So we're going to start with this premise, where do you think we got the Bible? And you might think, why is that really important? Well, here's why it's really important, because if we don't know the backstory if we don't know where we got this, if we don't know about its origin, if we don't know why it was written and to whom it was written, if we don't know those things, then it's very likely we will misunderstand it or misinterpret it. Because as we noted last week, if we don't know the, the backstory, then really we will never know the story. And if you don't understand how that works, then you can go to our online site. You can pull up the media tab and you can watch last Sunday's teaching because you'll need that. And I may refer to that a number of times as we go through this series. But the truth is, if you don't know the backstory about any story, you won't actually know the story. And so the backstory of the Bible is really important. Or worse yet, you may just dismiss it altogether as completely Irrelevant. So really what we're pressing into is, is the Bible really for grown-ups? You may have grown up in a home where your parents said to you, by golly, when I was a kid, I had to go to church. And now that you're a kid, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go to church. And you went to church until you left your parents' home. And maybe you're 10, 20 years past that. And you find yourself in a place where you are saying the same things to your kids. By golly, when I was a kid, why do we do that? I have a theory about that. Because there's something way down inside us that we all intuitively know that a life without some sort of faith is scary, it leaves us vulnerable. And intuitively we know there has to be someone or something out there that's bigger than us. And we find it virtually impossible to go through our life and ignore that. So we don't want our children 
to grow up without a faith. And yet, as adults, many of us have been hurt by a church or severely disappointed by a church or lied to by people who lead a church or abused by someone who stands in authority in a church or we have a neighbor who's a Bible thumper and we would like to be anything but what they are. There's all sorts of reasons why we might struggle with what we would call organized religion and yet want to have a personal faith. So I want to say a couple things. I want to say, first of all, a big apology to any of you who sit here this morning or are watching online. And those were your experiences. You deserve better than that. A lot better than that. And there's a reason I said to you this morning, this is a safe place for you, even if you're a skeptic. It's a safe place. Because God doesn't hate skeptics. If you just engage with him, then some amazing things can happen. And the fact that you are here just brings a smile to his face. Even if you're sitting there with your arms folded saying, prove it to me, God goes, thanks for the invitation. I'll take you up on that. Yeah. Because really, the Bible is not just for kids. The Bible is actually for grown-ups. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, it's important that we understand that Jesus didn't write the Bible, but he is the reason we have it. And I spent quite a bit of time on that last week, including this principle, that Jesus' resurrection is actually the event that launched the process that eventually brought us the Bible for the world. And apart from the resurrection of Jesus, we would actually have no Bible for the world. I wouldn't be able to stand up here and hold this book up. There wouldn't be billions of people in the world who trust it. It hadn't been for the resurrection of Jesus. And that's all encapsulated in the teaching from last week. So today, we're going to press in a different direction. It's called In the Beginning. And we're going to take a look at what comes out of that particular thing. And let's start with this. As the story of Jesus took the world by storm, and this happened shortly after his death and resurrection, over the next two to three hundred years, the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus, as I said last week, he launched the I Saw Him Too movement. Because there were hundreds of eyewitnesses all around the world who were telling the story. And there were thousands and thousands of people whose best friends were people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So as this I Saw Him Too movement, this Jesus movement took the world by storm, it also brought about a major shift in the world's dominant theology and in its worldview. In fact... The single most important and the largest shift in worldview ever in human history. The more I dig into the the history of what goes behind the Bible and what's behind the Jesus movement, the more I dig into this stuff, the more I just stand amazed at who Jesus is. 
I wanted to say the most revolutionary character in human history, but he wasn't a rebel. That's the amazing thing. The most astounding personality on the landscape of human history, no doubt. The most powerful figure in human history, absolutely no doubt. If all you do is study history, you have to come away with that understanding. He either was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, or he is far and away the biggest hoax this world has ever known. Let me show you what I mean by that. So, prior to Jesus coming, the entire world was what we would call polytheistic. Poly meaning many and theo meaning God. So, many gods... The whole world believed in many gods, except for one tiny little people group, the Jews. And the Jews comprised less than 1% of the ancient population of the world. 99% of the world was polytheistic. They believed in this pantheon. Now, every culture had its own pantheon, its own array and structure and, and so forth of gods and demigods and all that kind of stuff. So on this side, you had the polytheistic world, and they didn't call themselves Gentiles, but the Jews did. To the Jews, there are only two groups of people in the world, the Jews and those people, right? Gentiles. And the Jews were monotheistic, They believed in one God, and the rest of the world was polytheistic. Now, just to give you an idea of the shift in dominant world theology and worldview, within just 300 years, and it remains basically this way today, here's the shift. Prior to Jesus, 99% polytheistic, 1% monotheistic. Are you ready for this? After Jesus, 300 years after Jesus, 28% polytheistic. Wow. 56% monotheistic. And today there are 14% of the people who claim to either be agnostic or atheistic. That's a major, major shift. As this story of Jesus took the world by storm, if you, if you could see a sort of a religion meter and hear it as at, 98, at 99% and it goes all the way over to 28%. What about this whole group of people in here? Well, they knew one thing. They knew that Jesus was a Jew. And they knew that the Jews had some sacred texts And so this vast crowd of people became very interested in the Jewish sacred texts. And they actually began to read them. Because Jesus was, after all, a Jewish rabbi by culture. So they picked up the Jewish sacred texts and they began to read. And the oldest one and the first one of the Jewish sacred texts was was the book of Genesis or the manuscript of Genesis. So for those of you who are brand new, the Bible is divided into two sections. The first section is manuscripts that were written before Jesus. 
And the latter part of the Bible is manuscripts that were written after Jesus or as documentaries of his life and the movement he started. The first part of the Bible has 39 ancient manuscripts in it. The second part, the part written after Jesus, has 27 ancient manuscripts. And the first manuscript is the book of Genesis. And maybe even in the vernacular, you've heard the expression from Genesis to Revelation. If you have, it comes from the fact that the very first manuscript in the Bible is Genesis. And the very last one is Revelation. Now, the very first part of that first book of Genesis reads like this. Well, before we get to that, when Jesus claimed to be Son of God, by the way, the whole polytheistic world recognized not Son of the gods or Son of a God, but Son of the God, they recognized, wow, we don't know anything about that. We've never heard anything about that. So they picked up the Jewish text to read and they realized that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God brought into question a number of things. It brought into question the origin of the world. It brought into question the purpose of life. And so the very first statement in the Jewish text reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's what we're going to focus on for the next few minutes. But I want you to notice this is not only the first and opening sentence of the ancient Jewish text, it's also the text that Jesus himself quoted from while he was teaching. So Jesus, by his own very life, this guy who healed the sick, this guy who actually raised the dead, this guy who controlled the elements of the world, this guy who predicted his own life, predicted his own death, predicted his own resurrection, and then made good on it all, this guy quoted from this as being the authoritative word of God. So the whole world became interested in it. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That perhaps is the most, certainly is one of the most controversial statements in all of the Bible, and it's the opening sentence. How, how cool is that? God starts with an assertion, and for millennia, that statement challenged the many God's worldview that was the dominant world. 99% of the people in the world thought that the world was brought into existence in, in the context of a battle of the gods. And yet, when they picked up the Jewish text to read, it's not the gods, it's the God. And it's not in the context of a battle. It's so different than that. Now today... It's interesting. Today it challenges what has become in many places a dominant worldview that you and I and this whole world is a byproduct, an incidental or accidental outcome of some atoms somewhere at some time and, and through a process of evolution the world has become what it is today and you and I have. But there's no God in that formula. Today, it stands as a direct challenge to anybody's godless worldview. I didn't say atheistic, godless worldview. 
In the 1900s and the late 1800s, there were some documents, ancient documents, that were discovered, and it created some controversy about this statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you went to university uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, maybe even in some universities today, you'll hear this. And the question is, but what about the Egyptian, Sumerian, Canaanite, and Babylonian stories of creation? You know what Moses wrote wasn't all that original. He actually borrowed pieces of it from these stories. Moses was really a plagiarist. And that's because we didn't have the rest of the story. I'm happy to say to you that that is rarely taught in these days because as we uncovered more and more manuscripts, it wasn't the similarities between these stories that captured the historian's eyes. It was actually the radical opposition that they had to each other that, that ended up capturing the historian's eyes. For instance, and I'll just, I'll start with the Babylonians because we have the most complete record of their story. The central figure in the Babylonian story of creation is a god by the name of Marduk. And Marduk comes and enters this epic battle of gods and goddesses, and his chief rival is a goddess called Tiamat. And Marduk, in this battle, finds her in a position where he draws his bow and his arrow, and he shoots her through the mouth through the throat, and kills her. And therefore, he, has, he is now the ruling God, and he takes her body, and he cuts her body in half, and from the upper part of her body, he forms the heavens, and from the lower part of her body, he forms the earth. And that's, the, in, in brief, the, the Babylonian story of, of creation. little violent, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I have a good friend who said to me, uh, I wonder what Sunday school was like in Babylonia. Yeah. Huh. And if we were to go through the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and, and the Sumerian stories of creation, they're all similar. A little bit different, but they're all similar. I wanted to point out three giant differences between those and the story of creation that you find in the Bible. And the first is this. The origin of the earth stories from the other cultures involve many gods, always many gods, and they're fighting it out, and one eventually gets the preeminence and creates either all or a portion of the heavens and the earth. But it's it's the Jewish story stands absolutely alone as the only one who postulates that there is only one God. The second major difference is this. The other creation stories take place in some violent battle between the gods, but the Jewish story is far different from that. The Jewish story is more like an artist in his or her studio, creating something absolutely beautiful and fantastic and wonderful, and creating it as a home for his children. And if you've done any travel in this world, this world is absolutely magnificent. In many ways, it's beyond description. I'll never forget standing on the floor 
of Yosemite Valley with my wife, Monica, who had never been there before, and I had tried to describe it to her. And standing on the valley floor and looking up at El Capitan and looking up at Yosemite Falls and looking up at Half Dome and and looking at the Merced River that flowed through so peacefully, she said to me, now I know why every time I ask people to describe this place, they say to me, you just have to go. Yeah. No violence. Peace and beauty. The third major difference is this. In the other creation stories, people are made merely as an afterthought. That's kind of crazy. While in the Jewish story, they are the epitome, the apex, the focus of all the, uh, all the rest of creation. Let me read to you out of this out of the the Babylonian account uh, with this god Marduk and so forth, after he creates the heavens out of the top part of uh, Tiamat's body and the earth out of the lower half of her body, he says this. He says, I will take blood and fashion bone. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Truly savage. Man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. Wow. In other words, you and I, if this is true, you and I have only one purpose in this life, and that is to serve the gods so the gods can take it easy. How's that for being an afterthought? Yeah, so different from what the story that you find in the Bible where you and I are the special creation of God. But that brings up a very interesting question, and that is, but is the story of creation found in the Jewish manuscripts, is it actually accurate? Maybe it's just nicer sounding and more politically correct today. But it still might not be true. Is it actually true? Let's go back to that first statement in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to focus on only two words, and I have been focusing on the first one, And that is, I mean, the second one, and that is, it doesn't say in the beginning a God. It doesn't say in the beginning the gods. It says in the beginning what? God. Just one. Okay? In stark contrast, when when Moses wrote that, other than the tiny handful of Jewish people, and by the way, they weren't really monotheistic either. If you study their history... They were hiding all the other gods that they believed in. Yeah. Moses, when he wrote this, may stand as the only actual monotheist on the face of planet Earth. How would you like those odds? One against the world. And yet Moses writes, in the beginning, God. Wow. Let's talk about the beginning. Okay? So this passage is followed by a poem. Did you know that? That the next part of of the ancient Jewish manuscript is a poem, and that poem depicts God as creating, speaking into existence the, the known universe in six days and resting on the seventh day. And if you grew up and you, in church, you already know that story. And so 
there's a question there, and that is, is that really accurate? I want you to understand, first of all, remember we said, if you don't understand the backstory, you will likely misunderstand the story. You have to know why Moses wrote that. As the probably the only monotheist in the world, Moses wasn't explaining scientifically how God created the earth, but he was explaining theologically that God created the earth. There's a huge difference. Now, I'm really familiar with, you know, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and so forth. And I'm very familiar with all seven days and the stuff that God spoke into existence. But what you and I need to know is that that's actually a poem. Now, it could be a poem that's scientifically true because God could easily have spoken the entire world into existence in six days. For instance, Jesus walked up to people who had atrophied arms and legs, birth defects, only a partial arm with with maybe only two or three fingers, or someone had a stroke and it was all and their arm was all atrophied or their leg. And Jesus walked up to them and spoke healing to them and instantaneously all the bones were where they were supposed to be, all the correct fingers were where they were supposed to be, all the muscles, all the blood vessels, all the nerves, everything was immediately fully functioning. He created that in a blink of an eye. Just by speaking it. Jesus walked up to people who had been blind from birth. And in a moment, he said, receive your sight. And instantly, if the optic nerve wasn't there, it was now. If the retina wasn't properly formed, it was now. If the cornea didn't work, it did now. If the iris didn't work, it did now. In an instant, he could create all of that simply by saying, receive your sight. So could God create the heavens and the earth in six days? Yeah, but that's not the point that Moses is making. You see, he could have been using the same poetic license that other writers in the Bible used when they said, God makes the clouds his chariots and he rides on the wind. Are you willing to stake your scientific life on that? Probably not. Well, then be careful that you and I don't condemn people who don't think that God literally spoke the world into existence in six days because you're actually quoting a poem, not a scientific document. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. You know something? In the middle of all of this, is a truth that I don't want any of us to miss. And God didn't want you to miss it either. Because in this very first portion of the ancient Jewish text, this in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just a few verses later, he begins to speak into your life and mine about what difference does that make? And why is it so important that you and I would believe that God, one God, the God, created everything that you and I see? Because as Moses wraps up the story of creation, here's how he wraps it up. 
And God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Hmm. Now God had already at that point created all the other stuff in the world. But as God looked over the world, God knew there's all kinds of wonderful stuff and beauty. But there's nothing in this world that's really like us. And God said, let's make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. He created them male and female. He created them. It's not the point of the message today, but I just couldn't pass it up. I want you to notice that in this passage, Moses, 3,500 years ago, long before the women's live movement, Moses recognized that men and women were equally created in the image of God and therefore created on an equal platform. That much is for free. There's a couple of other things that I want us to notice, okay? And that is this. In the beginning means that you and I are not an afterthought. We are not an afterthought. We're not the accidental result of a random combination of atoms, carbon atoms, somewhere way out in space long time ago, and somehow we ended up to be who we are today. The overwhelming message of the Bible, the overwhelming message of this book, is that you and I are not an afterthought, but rather we are the focal point of the universe. in the beginning also means that you and I have been intentionally made in God's image for the purpose, okay? You have been made on purpose for a purpose. You have been made on purpose for a purpose, and the purpose is that you would share life and eternity with God. Listen, The day before God created the heavens and the earth, the day before God created Adam and Eve, God had no family. There was no one in heaven made in God's image. They were made by God, but they weren't made in God's image. Mankind, people. God said, I want a family. I want sons. I want daughters. I want a family. So, like any responsible father, he made a fantastic home for his kids. And then God created his kids. You procreate yours. Got it? God created his kids. And he made the world our sandbox. And he said, go play in it for a lifetime. Figure out how it works. Manage and govern it. The world is the sandbox for God's kids that we get to play in for a lifetime. And then God said, and come and tell me about it. If you ever built a sandbox for a child of yours, 
I know two things. You wanted your kid to go out there and to build something with his or her imagination, correct? Roads, castles, you didn't care. Build something cool. And then what? Come and tell me about it and show it to me, right? Because if your kid never said a word to you about anything that they built in the sandbox and never showed it to you, you would assume it was a flop, correct? Yeah. The world is God's sandbox for his kids. I just want to close with this. This is the big idea that God had that led to the Big Bang. Have you heard of the Big Bang Theory? Did you know that Moses was 3,500 years ahead of his time? Actually, Moses wasn't, but God was. It wasn't until 1937 that a Belgian priest by the name of Georges Lemaitre postulated that the world had, the universe actually had, an, an isolated beginning that in a trillionth of a second something happened and something, we don't know what it was, exploded into space and it actually began to expand at these phenomenal rates of speed and it ended up forming the universe that you and I live in and we commonly call that the Big Bang Theory. Did you know he based that on, on the cosmic microwave radiation theory? Did you know that? Huh. He didn't base it on that. We actually discovered that in the 1960s. He based it on other research that he did. But now pretty much everyone in the world understands that the universe had a beginning. And it was a big bang. And guess what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It did have a beginning. It was the big idea that led to the Big Bang, and that's a big deal for each of us because it means you were created on purpose for a purpose. There are three things that we can do as we close. First of all, take in the whole series. I hope you enjoyed this morning. I hope you're learning things. And I hope that you will decide, hey, there are two more in this series. I'm going to take in the whole thing. Uh, Number two, to decide to become a follower of Jesus. You know, it was Jesus who actually caused the Bible to be written. It was his life, death, and resurrection that caused it to be written. And in it, he reveals the purpose of life, which we talked a little bit about this morning. And then last of all, for those of us who are already Christ followers, I would just like to encourage you and me, let's go home and be grateful this week that we were made on purpose for a purpose by a loving God. And just before I invite Angela back up, I want to refer to the words of the last song that we just sang. I will build my life on your love. In the history of the world, you've been given three choices, really. The polytheistic worldview says you are an afterthought of a battleground, a violent battleground of the gods, and your job is to make the gods happy. No love, 
no grace, no mercy, no father, no family, none of that stuff. You can build your life on a godless worldview that you are the product of an accidental combination of atoms. No God, no, no love from an eternal father, no platform for any eternal grace and forgiveness. Or you can build your life around the God that Jesus taught. And that's why his love is a firm foundation for your faith. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for telling us the truth. And we are so blessed and so grateful that we were created on purpose for a purpose. Would you help us to go from this place and begin to order our lives around that? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.